A new United Nations report warns the impacts of climate change are increasing and inevitable. Experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. Temperatures in the Arctic have warmed about two to three times the global average. It will be very difficult and impossible for our children to control climate change. This is South of Two Degrees, and I am your host, Brian Barnes. It is so good to have you with us today on the only podcast dedicated to bringing unfiltered scientific research to the forefront of the climate conversation. As we kick off the new year, we're going to look into a critical issue that's boiled down to two words. We hear over and over again, from businesses to state actors, we hear them speak about net zero. And that's the rabbit hole we're diving down today. So my friends, once more, into the fray. Welcome back to the show and Happy New Year. Before we get busy today, I just want to take a second and thank you for listening. As you know, this is a completely free resource we do just for you. And the only way you can support us is by listening. Well, that and leaving a review, but I'm sure you've already done that. Now, that being said, you all came in big last year, putting us in the top 2.5% of all podcasts globally with listeners in nearly half the countries of the world. A quick aside, shout out to some of our new listeners in Tupos, Finland and Somerset, West, South Australia. We even were the number one podcast in both the nature category as well as the science category in a few countries. Now, why does this matter? Why do you or the team here at South of Two Degrees, for that matter, care about listenership? if we aren't trying to make money? Well, the point is that the more people that listen indicates that more people are having conversations about anthropogenic climate change. In fact, I just had the chance to speak with a listener in Stillwater, Oklahoma, and he mentioned that he had chatted with a friend about the podcast and subsequently climate change that lives in Fort Collins, Colorado. Now we also told her not to listen without a notepad, so I'm not sure if that's a good or a bad thing, but I digress. The point of all this is that we know from scientific research that conversations drive actions, and that is the goal of this entire endeavor, to give you the knowledge and insights you need to act effectively. So from the entire team here at South of Two Degrees, thank you. You, listening wherever you are, Give us hope. And that is worth more than any amount of money in my book. Okay, so on with the show. We wanted to begin the year with something that needs to be discussed and understood. After COP27 produced ho-hum results and COP15 gave us hope for the future of biodiversity protection, there is a phrase that gets tossed around in ever-expanding circles that we wanted to spend an entire show addressing. So let's start with a simple question. What do you think when you hear net zero? Progress? Good goals? What about misguided rubbish and greenwashing? Yelling at your phone? Really wishing you were in the same room to debate this? Well, before you get too worked up, what if I were to tell you it's all of those things, often at the same time? So today we're going to look at three things. What net zero actually means, where it has gone tragically wrong, and how it can actually be structured to be an effective goal as we fight anthropogenic climate change. Now, let's start off by defining net zero. At its core, 
Net Zero represents climate ambition and can and has been formulated a couple of different ways. The first, as was done in the 1992 UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, it had it formulated as a stabilized level of atmospheric concentrations. Or we could look at it as with the 1997 Kyoto Protocol as a percentage of an emissions reduction target. Confused already? All right. Think about absolute level versus percent reduction. But the current interpretation, though, is a specific target date by which emissions are balanced with carbon uptakes, both natural and technological sinks, that's linked to keeping peak anthropogenic warming below the targets set out by the Paris Accord. Now, before we continue, keep in mind the Paris Accord has two temperature targets, two degrees being the main one and 1.5 degrees being the ambitious one. However, in recent years, the focus has been almost solely on 1.5, which is fantastic because as we've gone through before on this show, every incremental gain in temperature makes the world as we know it exponentially more challenging. Now, in Article 2.1a of the Paris Accord, it states, quote, holding the increase in global average temperature to well below 2 degrees C above pre-industrial levels and pursuing efforts to limit the temperature increase to 1.5 degrees C above pre-industrial levels, end quote. Now, for those of my longtime listeners, think back to Season 1, Episode 2, where we learned pre-industrial to reference the mean global temperature between 1850 and 1900. Now, the latest UN report that just came out at the end of, what, October, stated, quote, there is no credible pathway to 1.5 degrees C in place, end quote. Now, considering that according to NASA, we're already at 1.11 degrees C, 1.5 does seem rather tight. Further, there's a very significant natural climate development that's going to occur this year that's going to push us dangerously close to that 1.5 that really only a few people are currently discussing. But that little bit of foreshadowing is for another show. I know you hate me. Just keep listening to the show and I'll discuss it in the coming weeks. But back to today. While 1.5 most likely is unachievable at this point, I want to give you an idea of what hitting that goal would take. According to the paper we're going to look at shortly, meeting the 1.5 degrees C goal with 50% probability translates into a remaining carbon budget of about 500 gigatons of CO2. Now to hit that goal, this carbon budget requires CO2 emissions to peak before 2030 and fall to net zero, see there's the term again, by around 2050. Now unless you're dealing with this on a daily basis, you're probably muttering something to the effect of, Great, Brian. I'm better equipped to tell you how long it would take a U.S. penny to hit the bottom of the Mariana Trench than I am to understand what 500 gigatons of CO2 means in real world terms. On a quick aside, it'd take that penny about three to three and a half hours depending on how it flipped and rotated on the way down. Yeah, I'm a nerd, but I guarantee you, you're going to spring that on someone later today. Anyway, to simplify the 500 gigatons of CO2, the annual rate of anthropogenic CO2 emissions is approximately 35 gigatons a year. Now, if we keep growing emissions at about 4.5% all the way up to 2030, which we have been doing lately, we're going to burn through that budget pretty darn quick. So what happens if we do? Well, we hit or pass 1.5 and hopefully start drawdown through a mix of natural and technological solutions, the former being the most important. Further, 
Keep in mind, 1.5 isn't some magical line that's good on one side and bad on the other. It builds and continues to get worse with each incremental gain. And that is where net zero comes in. We draw down until we have a balance of CO2 uptake and anthropogenic emissions that balances the world to below the 1.5 degree mark. So if the goal is balance, net zero sounds pretty good, right? Nope, you're wrong. Net zero as it stands today is absolute garbage. Now, if you're on the net zero bandwagon, you're probably wanting me to back this up. So here are three reasons and we'll dig into each. First, it has become a marketing ploy amongst companies trying to appeal to new customers, not actually moving the needle. Two, and contrary to popular belief, it doesn't mean we aren't still harming the planet, its ecosystems, and impacting biodiversity. And three, it's effectively a promise now and deliver later at all levels of action. So let's look at the first one. How companies have abused the term. As of June of 2022, one in three of the world's largest publicly listed companies is operating under a net zero target, and that's up from one in five back in December of 2020. Sounds great, right? Sadly, no. Keep in mind that companies are in business to make money. Now, this isn't a bad thing in of itself by any means, but rather the how that is the issue. Without going too deep, the current capitalistic model of growth at all cost hurts us all. New economic models such as donut economics and circular economy are making headway but are still a long way from being the norm. The problem is, when you have a growth at all cost mindset, taking action that will cost you in the short term, think quarterly hits to your margins, is difficult to justify. So how do many, and let me be clear, not all, companies balance this? Well, they do so by making pledges, and as consumers look to purchase goods and services from companies that appear to be good global citizens, this attracts them. That is just good marketing. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, in order to constantly achieve growth, you need a constant stream of new customers and old ones to be convinced to buy more of whatever it is you're selling. Enter marketing. Now, this is a standard calculation in business referred to as customer acquisition cost. In other words, what will it cost me to acquire new customers and the lower the cost is, the better for my profits? This again isn't in of itself bad, but when you couple it with the need to appear more sustainable, it goes south really quickly. You see, actually reducing your emissions is hard and pretty costly. That requires product redesign, operational changes, and rethinking logistical and manufacturing flows. Those all require big investments. Better in the long term, say 10 plus years? Absolutely. Better for your quarterly or annual profits? Nope, that's a good way to lose your job. So what's the easy answer? Enter carbon offsets. Now, if you haven't seen it, John Oliver of Last Week Tonight did a brilliant piece on offsets that I won't even try and replicate. So if you missed it, just pop on over to YouTube and check it out. It's fantastic. Otherwise, here's the basics of why offsets are bad. For starters, the idea that you can simply spend money and make your carbon footprint go away is so bad it's almost comical. It requires no heavy lifting and no real organizational changes. Further, while I always cite the studies I mention on the show, there are 
far too many studies out there that show again and again that offsets don't reliably reduce emissions. Now, at its core, carbon offsets are based on the term additionality. In other words, say the planting of a tree that otherwise wouldn't be planted or the protection of a forest that's scheduled to be clear-cut. That adds to the world's carbon reduction. The problem is, there's very little checking to make sure this is actually happening. Further, quite often, tree planting schemes consist of monoculture conifers in non-native areas leading to biodiversity loss. And after that carbon credit is claimed, there's really no incentive to keep that tree alive. The real damage here is that as the carbon offset market grows and the voluntary market is already estimated at about US $2 billion, companies buying into them can actually pollute more, making things worse than they currently are, which brings us to point two in that hitting net zero doesn't mean we are being better stewards. It just means we're acting more like the mob and laundering our carbon emissions such that no one will notice what we're actually doing. I mean, the fact that the majors in the oil and gas industry are operating under net zero pledges is absolutely and unequivocally ridiculous. We need to move away from oil and gas and towards renewables, not just planting trees so that coal-fired power plant down the road can pump up production again. Now, let me drive this home by putting it this way. Imagine you're pumping sewage into a stream. Now, you know how much you're pumping in, and you want people to look at you in a good light, so a few kilometers or miles downstream, you pull out the same amount of waste and store it in some warehouse. Now, you could go around and claim your pollution is net zero. But does that mean the stream is pristine? No, it doesn't. In fact, you could have a stream that for long stretches is downright lethal to all life. But because you're cleaning it up further downstream, that means you're environmentally responsible. You and I both know that's absolute And that, my friends, is net zero as it stands today. A bunch of us standing on the banks trying to convince everyone else to look at certain parts of the river. Now, the third and final point of why net zero as it stands today is a worthless goal is that there is the ability to promise now and deliver later. Think of it essentially as an IOU, but one that has little impact to the entity making it if they hit a specified date and go, oops, sorry, didn't quite get there. My bad. It's about as good as your kid apologizing after grinding blue slime into your carpet. I mean, your carpet's ruined, and while they apologize, any repercussions are short-lived in the grand scheme of things. Not that that happened in my house, and it definitely wouldn't have occurred last week. The point being here is that we need both immediate action as well as long-term sustainable strategies, and net zero falls flat on the former. Now, I'll stop beating up on companies here and put this in terms of state actors. Now, it's a hallmark of politics to make sweeping promises only to figure out how to do it later or even better, announce and claim credit for it, but make your successor have to make the hard moves. By some accounts, there is not a single country in the 140 or so that have net zero targets that will keep us below 1.5 degrees. Under current pledges, we're looking at about 1.8 by the end of the century. Now, if we look at only what is announced for in the short term, i.e. before 2030, 
then you're looking at about 2.4 degrees and it only gets worse. And I mean dramatically. If we just keep doing what we're doing, especially if we hide our increases with creative accounting, I mean, there just isn't time for broken promises. We need to move today. But Brian, if it's that bad, how do we get it right, you ask? Well, great question. And to help with that, let's look at a paper published just last year called The Meaning of Net Zero and How to Get It Right. Now, I I know I've mentioned it before, but I love how scientific papers just sum up the whole topic in the title and leave no room for intrigue. I mean, seriously, does it take that much? Change the title to what is net zero and can we get it right? And suddenly I'm all in. But if scientific research was so good at drawing people in, then I wouldn't need to do what I do. But I digress. As our paper today discusses, Net zero targets need to be laid out along with broader sustainability goals. This means an equitable net zero transition, socio-ecological sustainability, and the pursuit of broader economic activities. Now, I want to be clear. There is no official measure of ambition, adequacy, or fairness for countries' pledges or nationally determined contributions. The entire Paris Accord relies solely on process. And that, my friends, should give you a little pause. Okay, so to get net zero right, there needs to be a framework. Now, according to our paper today, it looks something like this. Imagine a pyramid with net zero as the top stone. Got that image? It's not that hard, so I hope so. Okay, so supporting that are three blocks highlighting the urgency of net zero, the integrity of net zero, and the consistency with sustainable development goals. I know, I know, you're going, well, that's pretty broad, Brian. You aren't helping. I hear you, but bear with me, as there is one more level in our pyramid, the base that holds this all up, and that is made up of seven attributes that make an effective net zero target, and we'll go through each briefly. The first and the second attributes support the urgency of net zero, the first being front-loaded emission reductions. You see, there are a couple of reasons why front-loading reductions is important. First, aside from the fact that every year of delay sets us back at least two, yeah, you heard me right, it also preserves optionality. In other words, we are free to tighten more if desired or needed as updated research becomes available. Say, for instance, like when Dr. Miner was on the show and talked about the melting of the permafrost. If that cascades at some point in the future, we would need to readjust reductions, and as it stands today, we don't really have that option. It also, as our paper notes, allows us to overcome the inertia of economic systems. And by that, I mean it allows for economies of scale to take hold, bringing down technology costs. As the paper notes, quote, it maximizes the growth potential of clean innovation and reduces the risk of investing in stranded assets particularly in growing economies, end quote. The second attribute, which also supports the urgency of net zero stone in our pyramid, is a comprehensive approach to net zero. And by that, I mean to say we need to decarbonize all sectors. The traditional approach is the energy sector, right? And don't get me wrong, that is where we absolutely need to start. But we can't just switch there and call the rest good. 
Industries Agriculture International Shipping, more on that later in the spring, and aviation are all sectors that have gotten little attention when you compare to the automobile and energy sectors. Now, the third and fourth attributes support the integrity of net zero stone in our pyramid. The third attribute is cautious use of carbon dioxide removal. Now, I'm going to skip over most of this as we covered it earlier under why net zero is currently worthless. But keep in mind, this also refers to being cautious with technological solutions or geoengineering. And before some green venture capitalist comes after me, I'll simply quote what the paper says so well. Nature-based solutions, biodiversity-based protection, restoration, and sustainable management of native ecosystems involve fewer trade-offs and are more resilient, end quote. The fourth attribute is effective regulation of carbon offsets. This we also touched on already, so I'll just mention that quality standards need to be upgraded and scrupulously enforced. Here again, the paper is bang on in stating, quote, Social and environmental concerns about carbon credits center around the credibility of purported carbon benefits, including the risk of non-additionality, the poor monitoring of emission avoidance, reduction or removal, and the presence of unwanted side effects, end quote. Okay, I know this is a bit tedious, but hang with me as the fifth, sixth, and seventh attribute all support our consistency with sustainable development objectives stone in our pyramid. The fifth being an equitable transition to net zero. Now, I could easily spend not just an entire show, but likely a whole season on the just transition. But for today, I'll keep it short as we already discussed this back in season two, episode nine, when we dove into the social cost of methane and actually advocated for the weighted version. Now, for today, though, I want to note that the Paris Accord doesn't advocate for identical net zero targets for all countries. Rather, it focuses on equity and an end to poverty. This lays the groundwork for three underlying implications. One, some countries need to reach net zero faster to make space for other ones that will take longer. Two, it allows countries to chart their own path based on their own circumstances, hence the creation of nationally determined contributions or NDCs. Yeah, that's where those come from. And third, it supports the idea that developing countries need both technological and financial help to reach net zero. Now, climate change is a global issue that requires collective ownership, and we have to solve it together. Because if we don't help our brethren, it's not like the climate just won't change on our own borders. The sixth attribute is a big one, as it is alignment with broader socio-ecological objectives. In less fancy lingo, it's getting back to just how, as climate change is a threat multiplier, nature-based solutions can address multiple issues. Instead of me interpreting this for you, the paper actually does a pretty decent job of putting this in layman's terms. Quote, for example... Land use change is both the biggest driver of biodiversity declines, accounting for approximately 30% of declines in global terrestrial habitat integrity, and the second biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions, accounting for about 23%. Now, nature-based solutions such as protecting or restoring natural ecosystems and sustainably managing working lands and seas can therefore, in theory, simultaneously help limit surface warming and slow biodiversity declines while also supporting human societies in countless essential ways, including public health, livelihoods, and food security, end quote. Now, I will only add to that 
that nature-based solutions need to be led either directly or through consultation with indigenous peoples and must, must be biodiversity-based. Finally, our seventh and last attribute to make net zero work is pursuit of new economic opportunities. Now, this begins with the removal of harmful markets such as fossil fuel subsidies and I'm not going to get on that soapbox today, but anyone who knows me has likely gotten a diatribe on how bad these are. Anyway, it goes further. In the in-developing countries, we need to support and proactively train a young workforce in the positions vital to making a green economy work. As for developed countries, that means redeploying workers after they've been retrained. Going to a net zero economy requires large scale changes that will be hindered by structural rigidities, but the payoff is massive. Now, to briefly recap, while net zero currently is worth very little, we can and should make it work by applying these seven attributes. One, front loaded emissions reductions. Two, a comprehensive approach to net zero. Three, cautious use of carbon dioxide removal, four, effective regulation of carbon offsets, five, an equitable transition to net zero, six, alignment with broader socio-ecological objectives, and seven, pursuit of new economic opportunities. Now, we're already running long, so I won't go into examples of incredible transitions that have proceeded expeditiously that should give us hope in humanity's ability to make change, such as the switch away from coal gas in the UK or the significant reduction in CFCs allowing the ozone layer to heal. But the point of today and of the paper we looked at is we have made big transitions in the past and we can do so again. We just have to try. And that wraps up another episode of South of Two Degrees. I'm off to spend some time in the mountains, but we'll be back in a couple of weeks. And just a reminder, you can now find show notes on the website, southoftwodegrees.org, in case you miss something and want to revisit it at your own pace. Now, aside from checking out the latest information on the website, blog, meta, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, do this for me. Tell one other person about this show in the next week. Have at least one conversation about climate change with someone else. And above all, keep it south of two degrees. <laughs>